Good morning, church. It is so great to see you. If you know it, say it with me. We are the body of Christ, called to be Jesus in every neighborhood in San Antonio and beyond. And one of the practical ways that we are seeking to accomplish the call of God on our life as a church is to establish these things we're calling area communities. An area community is a collection of believers who all live in the same area of town in San Antonio or the hill country, and they join together as a community to belong to each other, uh, to grow spiritually, to help each other grow spiritually in their walk with God, and finally to serve. To not only serve each other, but to serve the lives of the people in the spaces in between the houses and the classrooms where you're a part of. And it is our goal that you will join together with an area community that's developing in your, in your community so that you can tangibly be the presence, can tangibly be the hands and feet of Jesus. And uh, there's so many area communities that, that are developing. We have Outer West that has come together. They're meeting again, I think, next week, next Saturday. We have uh, Brandeis Area Community for those who live in the Brandeis area. We have Marshall Area Community uh, that just met yesterday, had an outstanding gathering for those who live in the Marshall High School area. Uh, this week, Cibolo Creek Elementary School. Those of you who live in the Bernie area around the Cibolo Creek, they're meeting this afternoon from 3 to 5 at the Fair Oaks Country Club. And then next week, we have uh, those who live in the Fair Oaks Elementary School area will also be meeting at the Fair Oaks Country Club. My challenge to you, my encouragement to you for your sake, as well as the sake of the mission that God has given us to be a part of the area community that's in your community. Amen? Well, today we are continuing our journey down the Romans Road, and uh, what we are discovering uh, as we sort of hang out at mile marker number four is that God has a new purpose on our life. And what he's been telling us in our study through the book of Romans is that day, and hopefully all of you have made this decision, to walk across the bridge of faith and enter into a right relationship with God, that that day when he did that for you, it changed everything. Everything became new for you. As a matter of fact, on this side of the Romans road, we've been learning about what it means to grow in this new relationship we have with God. And believe me, growing toward Christ-likeness is way better than anything we experienced on the other side of the Romans road. We're also now learning at mile marker number four what our new purpose is. We began talking about this in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, where Paul told us that our new purpose as followers of Christ begins with our relationship with God. That because or in view of all that he has done for us to bring us to this point, we should offer up our whole lives and our whole bodies as living sacrifices to him. That is a part and the beginning of our new purpose. And then he moved down to Romans 12, 3 through 8, and he added this new purpose to our life, a relationship with ourselves. What Paul is saying is that we cannot have healthy relationships with other people until we have a healthy understanding of who we are in Jesus Christ. And what we learned in Romans chapter 1 through chapter 11 is that we all have equal value in the body of Christ. 
But we've learned in this passage that we've been given different capacities and different spiritual gifts, not to be used to determine a pecking order of importance or value, but rather to be used collectively to accomplish God's purposes on earth. And it takes all kinds of different people in the body of Christ to accomplish all that God wants to get done on this earth. Then he moves to Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 16, and he talks about our new purpose in our relationship with each other, with each other, fellow followers of Jesus Christ, sojourners on the second half of the Romans road, people that we're called to join arm in arm with to accomplish God's purposes on earth, people, the Bible tells us, that we will spend an eternity with. And I read this paragraph, I see no less than 17 practical principles to drive our relationships with each other as fellow Christ followers. Now, I particularly like the one, I don't know if you read the paragraph, that encourages you to make a pie and bring it each week to your favorite senior ministers. Now, it's in the original language, so it doesn't appear in your English text, but it's there. Well, maybe it's not there, but it is a note on the margin of my Bible suggesting this is a good application for the people. Now, if you think it's a good idea like I do, my favorite pie is blueberry. Now, I asked Max, and turns out Max doesn't even like pie. So, make that two blueberry. In the next section, the section we're going to be looking at today, Paul is going to turn his attention and our attention to our relationship with our neighbors. And I'm going to tell you this. If you are courageous enough to look with your own eyes at these two paragraphs we're going to be looking at, because I'm telling you now, there's going to be some challenging principles for us to swallow. If you're courageous enough, I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles and hold them high over your head. (laughs) Anybody? Okay, good. (laughs) Here we go all over the house, and say this prayer we've been saying every week during our journey down the Romans road. Ready? Dear Lord, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We take this journey together down the Romans road, knowing the destination is you. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Now we're going to look at two different uh, paragraphs or sections in the book of Romans today that each have a different focus on the same topic. First, we're going to look at Romans 12, 17 through 21, where Paul is going to instruct us on how to respond to our neighbors who have been a bit ornery, who have been a bit difficult. Have anybody like that that lives around you? How do you deal with people in our neighborhoods, in our areas, our schools, people we rub shoulders with at work? How do you respond to people who've been a bit challenging to you? People who don't carry the same values that we do on this side of the Romans road, people who are not embracing or don't even know the new purpose that we've been called to, and certainly people who don't have the Holy Spirit in them that we learned in Romans chapter 8 that would even give them the ability to pull these principles off if they knew them. How do we respond to them? Well, the overall principle is found at the end of that paragraph, verse 21. So I want you to look at that first with me. Do not overcome evil with evil, but overcome evil with good. 
I like the way John Stott puts it in his book. He says, when we overcome evil with evil, we double the evil in our world. But when we overcome evil with good, we have done our part in canceling out an evil in the world. I love that. Someone asks you, what's your job? You respond, I am an evil neutralizer. But I actually think it's more than that. I think that good deposited in our communities, in our neighborhoods, in our homes over time doesn't just have a neutral impact over evil, but rather I think it begins to make headway. I think it begins to take ground, even in the heart, though he or she may not admit it initially, even in the heart of the person who has been offensive to us. Now, go back to verse 17. He says it again. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. He says, if a neighbor does you wrong, offends you, do not return a wrong. Rather, I like what he gives us to do in verse 17. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. He says, remember that your response and therefore your witness is being watched by everybody. Not just by the person who has hurt you or offended you, but the other neighbors are watching, as well as your children and grandchildren, and they're taking the clues from you of what it means to really believe in God. This thing is called the Christian life is more caught than taught. And I can speak until I'm blue in the face about what the Bible says, but if you who claim Christ don't live it out in your neighborhoods, your children are going to pick up that message over mine. And that's, my friends, what they're going to go with in their life. We need to maintain a good witness to everyone who sees our response when someone has done us wrong. Now look at verse 18. He adds, if it is possible as far as it depends on you, live at peace with every one. Now here's where it gets really challenging. What he is asking us to do is not something natural to the flesh that we have. He is saying, in your relationship with your neighbors, even those who tick you off from time to time, you need to value peace over your own rights. That means from time to time, God may be calling us to put down our rights and our wants over the value of having a peaceful connection with our neighbor who has offended us. Now there are times when we can't do that because putting down our rights would mean that we would have to do something in violation to the word of God, but most of the time it doesn't. And that's one of the hardest things to do to knowingly put down your right. I have a right to this in order to keep a connection with a neighbor who's been cantankerous. And Paul says it still might not work to bring about peace in the relationship with your neighbor, that outsider. But you'll know when you put your head on the pillow at night that you have done everything in your power to make it work. Now in verses 19 through 20, Paul says the same thing in another way. I like it. Verse 19, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. 
Now for those of you who have been around the study of scripture for a while, you've seen this principle appear not only in the New Testament, but also in the Old Testament. For those of you who are new to the study of scripture, you might be surprised about this. That when a neighbor does you wrong, remember it is not in your job description to sit around and burn up a lot of energy thinking about how you will revenge them. It is not in your job description, that is God's job in his timing. Whether people know it or not, or like to admit it or not, but God will right every wrong in his time. Free up your schedule, free up your emotional energy, give your way to bitterness, and let God do his part in making the situation right. Now, I do like what he encourages us instead to do in verse 20. Look at it. He writes, On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now what's he saying? He's saying, if you do not avenge a neighbor who has offended you or wronged you, and later that same neighbor becomes sick, be the first one to take a meal over to them. If you have a neighbor who has offended you, has done you wrong, and you, not, you have not avenged that wrong, and later you find that neighbor out working on a big project in the yard, be the first one to volunteer. Now I'll tell you, this is not for a believer with a weak stomach, because it is very difficult with a good spirit to come alongside and do what Paul is saying. But that is the new purpose we're being charged with today. And many believers just can't stomach this kind of obedience. But if you can't, maybe take some encouragement in what he says next. He says that when you do this, it'll be like heaping hot coals on your neighbor's head. And, he, and I hear some of you saying, hot, how hot? Like really hot? Like hot enough to burn all the hair off of their head and even their eyebrows? Yes, but I'm not sure that's the spirit by which you should do this. <laughs> I like what John Stott also says about this passage. He says, the burning coals are a symbol of the shame and remorse experienced by the neighbor who has been rebuked by kindness. I love that. The coals are a symbol of the shame and remorse experienced by a neighbor who is rebuked by kindness. Now I want you to skip over to chapter 13 and verse 8. In this section, Paul is still addressing our relationship with our neighbor and our new purpose with them, but turns it around and says that we should not seek to initiate harm to our neighbor, but rather we should seek ways, even be creative on how we should love them. This, Paul says, is how we should use our energy. Look at verses 8 through 10. Let no debt remain outstanding except for the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be, are all summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Now you notice that those commands are all commands that invite us not to harm our neighbor. But it all can be summed up with this mental attitude, which if you've been around the Oak Hills Church for any length of time, you've heard over and over again that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. 
This is not only a teaching in the book of Romans, but it flowed off the lips of Jesus numerous times when he was on this earth, and it even initially appears in the Old Testament. He goes on to say, Love does no harm to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. In this section, Paul is not talking about our reaction to our neighbor, but our proaction towards our neighbor. He says, this is the next part of the new purpose that God has in your life. And I thought a way to maybe illustrate this is to give a modern day example. Max and I both received this email uh, a little while back uh, from a lady. I'm going to tell you her story. Listen carefully. This is kind of her backstory, if you will. First of all, she just simply says, I want to give you my background to know where I came from. My life starts off, she says, wonderful childhood, close family, family vacations. I was one of three daughters, youngest of three daughters, and I was 100% a daddy's girl. Story number one. She says, my mom grew up very Catholic, but she never pushed religion on us and gave us the freedom to go with whatever direction we wanted to. And she says, I went the direction of my aunt who believes in holistic ideas about nature and life. That life was a circle. What you put out in the universe, you will receive back in your own life. Be good to others and others and be good to your body and be one with your soul. A higher power. I was comfortable with that. A higher power. It just made sense to me. Story number one. Story number two behind the door, she says at a young age, she thought back as early as fourth grade, she uh, watched her dad battle with brain cancer. And she said at the age of 15, the hospital finally sent him home on hospice care to die. And she talked about that difficult journey and how on January the 10th, 1987, her dad was home and she says she was sitting by his bed and she could hear the liquid in his lungs every time he breathed. And she says she thought he was hanging on because of me. He didn't want to let me go. And so she says she held his hand and a few hours later he died. She then goes on to write, he died just 10 days before my 16th birthday. That's a part of her story, number two. Story number three, behind her door is her mother had a difficult time and she grieved for the next couple years so much so that they don't even remember ever going out of the house leaving the three girls to essentially raise themselves the oldest daughter went to college the second daughter went to live with her boyfriend and and she decided to stay at home but she entered into a relationship with a gal that was very very controlling and introduced her to marijuana and together that relationship went even further she said we stole cars together, shoplifted, skipped school. So eventually, during her sophomore year, she was uh, kicked out of school, and she was eventually enrolled in a drug rehab program. She writes, I became active in Alcoholics Anonymous. During meetings, there was much talk about a higher power. Some people called it God, but I was in no way going to go there and take a chance that he might be that big in my life. At my best, I had three years and two days of sobriety. Story number four behind this gal's life is at the age of 17, during her senior year in high school, she went to the doctor and the doctor found a tumor in her breast the size of a golf ball, malignant. And she says, though I was one of the lucky ones, they were able to get all of it out in one surgery. But that's a part of her story. 
a part of the scar in her life. Story number five, she writes, at the age of 21, I fell head over heels in love with a boy who had never tried drugs. He was clean, but I quickly changed all of that and introduced him to marijuana. After five years of being together, he died in a motorcycle accident. Story number six, keep living. She said, after that, I developed a relationship with a girl that turned out to be a crack addict. Now things got worse, she writes. I was introduced to every type of drug on the street. No one ever suspected me of being a drug addict. I didn't look the part of your typical drug addict. I was pretty, always well-groomed, always had a job, always smiling. I had it under control unless you were in my small circle of friends, and I thought I was doing okay. Fast forward a couple years, at the age of 31, she decides to go back to college and try to do something with her life. And she says, even while she was doing that, she writes, I was still continuing to get high on a regular basis somewhere between eight to 10 times a day. Story number seven, at the age of 32, I joined an online dating website. That can't be good. But she writes, on September 23, 2001, I met Dave. College graduate, he had a good job, and most importantly, he had never gotten high on anything and had no desire to. He comes from a strong religious family upbringing, and his father was a Marine. Then she writes, I was scared. I trusted two men with my heart, and they both died. I questioned why God would have chosen those paths for me. I came to the conclusion that there was no God. Why would he put me through such hell over and over again throughout my life? I was very confused, but I decided to take a leap. I walked away from my crazy lifestyle I was living. I walked away from my old friends who enabled me. No more drugs. I gave it all up. So the following February 23rd, 2002, we got engaged. The following September 23rd, we got married. The following July 25th, our first daughter Morgan was born. I was happy. I was the closest to whole I'd ever been. 18 months later, our second daughter Madison was born. I thought my life was complete. Her name is Susie. Then she says, then we moved to Texas. Bernie to be exact. Now imagine she moves into your neighborhood. She moves into your neighborhood and she looks like the average suburban woman. You know, she's married, two kids, two-car garage, dog, cat, SUV in the driveway. She looks like any other suburban woman, but you know these seven things I shared with you are a part of the story behind the door of pain, of loss, of scars, of disappointment, of shame, of guilt. She writes, in 2006, we moved to Bernie, Texas. One of my neighbors is one of your Oak Hills members. I like that, one of your Oak Hills members, like I own you guys, you know? Yeah, maybe I do. Blueberry pie makes me happy. By the name of Brandy, her name was Brandy. We were friendly, not much in common. She is sweet, a Christian, a churchgoer. Here in Texas, I learned that it goes like this. Hello, nice to meet you. Where are you from? What church do you attend? I love that about Texas. I felt very outside of the loop. But Brandy was very nice to me. One day while I was driving the girls to the grocery store, Morgan is talking in the back seat. I figured she was talking to her imaginary friend. We have heard her talk many times at night to her friend. She asked me that day about God. 
I was blank. I had no idea how to answer anything about him. Then she said to me, Mom, I'm going to stay here with you for a while, a long while. I said, well, I'm glad to hear that. She replied, God told me that I'm going to be here with you, and I'm not going to die for a long time. My first reaction was to, uh, was to lock up the brakes, but I didn't want her to think that she said something wrong, so I calmly asked her to repeat herself. I told her I couldn't hear her. She repeated it word for word. Every hair on my body was standing up. I had no answers about God. Who was that? I said, go ask your father. He knew him. I ran to Brandy a few days later and told her the story. Brandy's response, Susie, that is God talking to you. He's talking to you through, his, through your children. I told Brandy I would give church a try for my girls. I needed to have some answers for them. Brandy says, whatever you need to tell yourself to get yourself in the front door is okay. But deep down, I knew I needed to find God as much as I was denying it. Dave and I went to Oak Hills. A few weeks later, I was talking to Brandy on text on the computer. I said we were going to church. I said Oak Hills. Brandy had never pushed church on me, certainly not Oak Hills, but Oak Hills was Brandy's church. She said all the hairs were standing up on her end now. She said she and another neighbor had been praying, praying for me to find a way to God. I said, I was giving it my best shot. So not only did I end up at Brandy's neighborhood, but I ended up at Brandy's church. We went for several weeks. We liked it, not pushy. I understood all the sermons. I checked the dates, and those were the weeks that Max was up. <laughs> I learned from them. They kept me wanting more. Um, I had a full feeling in my soul. Then Brandy uh, brought me to a mentoring mom's group. There I met Lawana Lloyd. She was my mentoring mom. She's super special to me. We would talk and talk about our lives growing up. I could relate to her children and she could relate to my mom. I had, I had someone who could tell me what it looked like from a mother's point of view. I also took the beginner's Bible study, which left me with more questions than answers, but I felt good and I was ready. I turned it all over. I was exhausted. I wanted release. And finally that day, I called him God. He was so big. I had surrendered. I understood what I needed. I understood that I needed him. I also understood that he loved me and was looking back on my life. He was there every step of the way. He was that calm feeling when I allowed it to happen. He was holding my hand while I was holding my father's hand. He was the one who took the lump in my breast in one step. He was the one who kept me alive. When I was so high I couldn't even walk and thought my heart was going to burst from an overdose. He was there the whole time. God was there. He was there to put Dave in my life. He was there as my children were born. He was there to put Brandy and me in the same neighborhood. He was there talking to Morgan, leading me to wonder what he was all about. He was there when I met Lawana. He was there the day I was reborn as Lawana baptized me at Oak Hills. He was there and now, she writes, and now I am a Christian. Now I am finally whole. That is a beautiful, beautiful story. Max and I received this letter because uh, they were going to be moving to Tallahassee, Florida, and she wanted uh, us to know 
the impact of the people of Oak Hills had on her and her family's life. And she's still unpacking in Tallahassee, Florida, but she was able to find her laptop computer, and she wanted to send us a hello from Oak Hills. And she's doing it from her webcam. It's hard to kind of understand because of the technology, but we'll put some closed caption underneath. So meet Susie Pierce. Hello, Oak Hills. My name is Susie Pierce. I wanted to let you know that everything that Randy has shared with you about my story is true. For most of my life, I did not believe in God, and I did not believe he had a purpose. In 2007, my family and I moved to San Antonio, and there, a neighbor started talking to me about God. That neighbor was Randy Eggley. I'm thankful every day that God put Brandy in my path and made her available to me. I'm also very thankful for Lawana Lloyd. She mentored me as a mom, a Christian, a friend, and she baptized me at Oak Hill. I now know, through God, all things are possible. Looking back on it, I've always been on the Romans road. God has brought me my husband, Dave, my children, Morgan and Madison, Brandy, Alana, and the rest of my family at Oak Hill. And each has played a part in making me who I am today. I am a Christian. And I'm very excited to be on this journey with my family. Randy, I want to say a quick thank you to you. For a couple of months ago, you were sharing with us one of your family traditions. And that is, when your family sits down to dinner, you all talk about your day. You said it was important to keep the lines of communication open. My husband and I thought that that was such a great idea. We've made that one of our family traditions. Our children are very young. They're five and three and a half. But we're trying to teach them now that open lines of communication are the key. So every night at dinner, Randy, I say a quick thank you to you. I have to get back to unpacking some boxes. We just moved, and there's still lots to do. I have to say, if I don't see you again on this side, I look forward to being your neighbor on the other side for all of eternity. God bless. I miss you. Wow. That is a life that has been changed for all eternity. All of the shame and all of the disappointment, all of the scars, all of the low self-esteem that drove the first years of her life have been completely changed on this side of the Romans road. That is what Paul is calling us to as a new purpose in our life to our neighbors, those outside of the walls of faith. That's what it looks like. When we talk about being the presence of Christ in every neighborhood, that's it. And I want you to notice how simple Brandy's assignment was. She simply says, Susie says that first of all, she took the initiative to walk across the street and introduce herself to me. Number two, she says she was nice to me. You know, nice goes a long way. Number three, she was available. When, when Susie needed her, she was available. And finally, the fourth thing she simply did was to pray. She prayed for her neighbor Susie and look my friends, at the outcome. A life that is changed. This is the kind of purpose that Paul is calling us to. I want you to look at a picture. Here's a picture of Susie, Brandy, and Lawana together. Three sisters 
in Jesus Christ. Why should we do this? Why is God calling us to act this way to our neighbors? If you still have your Bibles open, look briefly here at verses 11 through 14. Paul writes, And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer than, we, than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think how to gratify the desires of the flesh. What's he saying? Paul is saying that Christ's coming is a day closer today than it was yesterday, and he can come back now at any moment. He's establishing a sense of urgency for us for two reasons. Number one, that when Christ comes, we want to be found doing what he commissioned us to do in our new purpose. Number two, the decision of salvation. While available to everyone, regardless of their past, is available to everyone, but they have to make that decision before they die or before Christ comes back. And because of our love for our neighbor out of God's love for us, we desire for them to trust Christ now. Therefore, Paul tells us it's time to get up. It's time to get over your drowsiness and get into the game. He says it's time to get dressed. Take off your night clothes. Take off your pajamas, that is the deeds of darkness, and put on your day clothes, the armor of light. Later he says that we should clothe ourselves with Christ, that we may be able to do for our neighbors what Christ would do for them if he were here. We are called to wear the characteristics and the teaching of Christ on our hands and on our lips and on our feet and even in our eyes. Why? Why? So maybe, just maybe, our neighbor might see a glimpse of Christ in us and choose to put their trust in him before it is too late. That in trusting him, they may not only be our neighbors here on this earth, but for all eternity, just like Brandy and Susan and Lawana will experience. The Hebrew word amen is literally translated, so be it. Today, O Kills folks, I charge you with this new purpose on your life towards your neighbors in the power of the Holy Spirit. And all of the church said, so be it.